We welcome everyone to Bible class this morning and our KFUO listening audience as we continue our study of Galatians. And today we're going to begin on Galatians in Galatians chapter 4, verse 1. Now this passage, Galatians 4, 1 to 7, a little personal story here. Um, 47 years ago, when I was a second-year seminarian, my pastor, who was very influential in encouraging me to go into the ministry, asked me to preach at my home congregation on the Sunday after Christmas. And this was the passage. So I wrote my sermon carefully, and I learned it. And uh, these were people I had grown up with and my pastor, so tried to get it just right. So the morning of the sermon, I'm going to leave early and get to church. And my bride of just two years is uh, standing at the door to wish me well. And she gives me a kiss on the way out. And then she gave me these words of encouragement. They were only three. Don't embarrass me. <laughs> Don't embarrass me. She says I never have. But, uh, but that's my story about Galatians 4, 1 to 7. Okay, so I say as long as the heir is a child, he is no different than a slave being master of all. Okay, so the child lives in the household and of course, he's the heir of all the father's property, and, uh, but he's not ready to assume that role. So he's as a slave, even though he's going to be master of everything. But he's under guardians and stewards until the time set by his father. Okay, so he's going to be under guardians and overseers until he gets older. Now this is playing on what we read at the end of chapter 3. That the guardian then he was talking about was the law. Because the law would show us over and over and over again that we need a Savior and would direct us to the Savior. Now it just mentions um, guardians and overseers. Now certainly the guardians and overseers for the Jews were indeed, was indeed the law. But now he changes this for the Galatians. So us, because we were children under the elemental principles of the world, or being enslaved, we were enslaved. We had been enslaved by the elementary principles of the world. For the Jews, it was the law. But now, he's talking to the Gentiles in Galatia. Now, what the elemental principles of the universe are has never been nailed down. But we think it is the fact that they worshipped idols. They were uh, involved in idolatry. 
they were, um, you know, the elemental principles of the universe were fire, water, air, earth. Okay. So um, that kind of thing, you know, they made idols out of wood, out of stone, out of all these things. So Paul is saying, we were enslaved. Now, not necessarily we were guided, but we had been enslaved by these things. Okay, so that's his introduction. And then it says, when the time had fully come, or when the time was fulfilled, God sent forth his son. Now that passage there, when the time had been fulfilled, has been studied a variety of ways. There are, one, there are those that want to interpret it as it was just the right time in the secular world. Because there was basically a common language in the Roman Empire. The Romans had built extensive roads to move their armies, their legions, through the world, so travel was easy. There were no border crossings, because it was all the Roman Empire, you could go anywhere. So it was the perfect time for God to send his son into the world, where everybody pretty much had the same language and could travel and spread the gospel. Now that's one way to look at it. But the other way that people look at this is when the time had fully come, and we're not talking about secular things at all. We're talking about God's plan for history. And we're talking about God bringing his plan of salvation to fruition. So it's it actually be trans, uh, translated as when God got good and ready, he sent his son. Okay? When God got good and ready, because it was part of his plan of salvation. Part of his plan of salvation. God sent forth his son, born of a woman, born under the law. All right. This passage immediately speaks of the incarnation. The Son of God was born of a woman. That is, he became man. Okay? He was born of a woman. He was not only the Son of God, he was a human being. A human being. So this is why it's being for the Sunday after Christmas, because it speaks of the Incarnation. Okay. But then it goes on to say, and he was born under the law. You and I are born under the law. When we're born into this world, we do not know God. In fact, we want nothing to do with God. And when we are under his law, his condemnation, okay. and our life, unless we come to faith in Jesus Christ, will always be judged by the law on the basis of the law. He was born under the law. He was too. And he had to be. Because to be fully and completely our substitute, 
he had to be like us. We were under the law, so he was under the law. In other words, the law's demands were upon him, just like they are upon us. The difference is we can't keep the law's demands. Jesus Christ kept them perfectly. And this we call his active obedience. We needed a substitute that could do what we can't do. We couldn't keep the law, so he kept it in our behalf. That's his active obedience. His passive obedience is that he suffered death on a cross. But we had God's demands... His just demands had to be met. Somebody had to keep the law. And Jesus did so. So that's why it says he was born under the law. Because that is what he was going to do. Part of what he was going to do for us, keep the law. Yes. Correct. It does. Uh, God sent forth his son. Uh, it doesn't say God created his son. God sent forth his son. The son was already there. He sent him forth into the world, born of a woman. So um, we see here the eternity as well. Now, why did he do this? In order that, okay, he would redeem, in order that he might redeem those under the law. Redeem means buy back, or it can mean rescue, ransom. In order that we might receive the adoption as sons. Okay, so two things. There's two aspects of the gospel here. First of all, that he would redeem us, ransom us, because we would no longer have to keep the law to save ourselves. He was going to do that in our behalf. He was going to purchase us. And of course, the purchase price was his own blood. In order that we might receive adoption as sons. Okay. There is only one Son of God, Jesus Christ. But we are the adopted children of God. We are adopted at the same point when we're baptized, okay? When we are baptized, we receive the adoption as sons and daughters of God so that we have that. It's ours. And because we are sons... God sent the spirit of his son into our hearts. Again, the word sent, the spirit was already here. The spirit of his son. Here we're talking about the Holy Spirit. When does that come to us? Through baptism or through the word. Okay. So it's a further blessing. God sent forth his son into our hearts, crying, Abba, Father. In other words, we're now in a new relationship with God. Before, 
Jesus Christ, we could not call him Father. That is a particular relationship that only comes when God declares us to be his children in Christ Jesus. So when we are declared to be the children of God in Christ Jesus, through faith in the word, through baptism, then we can call him Father. And the word Abba is a very personal word. That there's a personal relationship between us and God. Some people want to translate the word Abba as Daddy. Okay? Personal word. We cry to him, Abba, Father. So we are no longer slaves, but sons. And if sons, heirs through God. Now notice, as we go through this, we're not doing anything. We were redeemed. We were adopted as sons. We have been made heirs through God. The act of salvation, our entire salvation, is based upon what God does and not what we do. Paul's going to discuss that more as we go through chapter 4. It's all dependent on what God does. Never on us. So we are the heirs. And of course, the implication is we are the heirs of eternal life. Verse 8. Okay, everybody with me there? Yeah, Jan. And that is exactly right. Because so some churches practice that the most important thing is that you make your decision for Christ and come forward and are baptized. And the baptism is nothing more than a symbol that you've made your decision for Christ. Whereas baptism is God's act. And therefore it can be trusted because what happens with believers' baptism is simply this. People doubt their decision. Well, did I re- was I really wholeheartedly committed? Do I need to do this again? Where's the focus on them? Therefore, their salvation cannot be a certainty for them because it's in doubt because it depends on them, a sinful human being. When baptism firmly is the act of God, don't need to do it again. He doesn't make mistakes. You have been baptized. And if you move away from that baptism, it's your fault. But his baptism that he did is always there for you. Does not depend on your parents. It does not depend on Pastor, it does not depend on how much water is put on. It depends on God. And that's a critical distinction. All right, eight. But then, not knowing God, you were enslaved 
to nature and to what is not God. Okay? What is not God. Or God's. What is not God. In other words, he's going back to what he said earlier. You were controlled by the elemental, elemental principles of the universe. You worshipped things that were not gods because you didn't know God. Now, knowing God, and here's an important distinction, rather being known by God. What matters is not that you know God, because the only way you know God is that he has revealed himself to you. It is more important that he knows you. And how does he know you? He baptized you. By name, in the name of the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. So the important thing, back, we don't emphasize us. We emphasize God. Okay? God. Right? Then why do you turn again to the weak and destitute principles of the universe? Do you again want, do you wish again to be enslaved? Now he's drawing the comparison with these false teachers that have come. After God has done all this for you, are you going so, to so quickly turn and enslave yourselves again to the way of life you used to live? He's equating the life they used to live as the same false teaching that you've got to be circumcised and obey the law to save yourself all the same thing, because it's not a means of salvation. It's not a means of salvation. You observe days and months and seasons and years. I fear for you that maybe I have labored in vain. In other words, I'm fearful if you go back to these old things that I have come to you and preached the gospel for nothing. Okay? For nothing. Okay. Verse 12. I'm going to translate... And for those of you who don't know, why don't uh, what I do sound just like your translations? Because I am translating from the Greek. Because there's too much here to ignore. When we get to verse 12, the Greek is an absolute mess. Okay? If you look up this verse in commentaries, they will translate it three, four, five different ways. I'm not going to try to explain to you why I'm going to translate it this way, because neither would you understand or care. I'm just going to do it, but it's going to sound different than what's in your Bible. Imitate or become like me, that I, as you brothers, brothers and sisters, I ask nothing of you. You wronged me. Now, your translations will say, you did not wrong me. 
That's because the word for not either has to go with I ask you nothing or you did me no wrong. So we're going to put the nothing with I asked you to do nothing. And the reason we're going to do that is he does not ask them to keep the law. He does not ask them to be circumcised. He does not ask them to keep the Old Testament dietary rules. He doesn't ask anything of them. And then we're going to translate the end, you wronged me. Because as we read the context here, they did. They did wrong him. By giving up the gospel, he preached to them for something else. They did wrong him. So uh, that's why we're going to translate that verse like this. And uh, Bud, Bud can explain it. You can explain it. You can't explain that? Well, and here's the problem. In the Greek text, there is no punctuation. In the Greek text, there are no spaces between words. The Greek text is just straight across with no punctuation and no space between words. So you have to be able to divide the words and the punctuation that has been placed in there is not in the original text. Not in the original text. So forget about the punctuation. Okay. But the, the, real, the real problem here is you've got a clause with no object of that clause. And the object has to be the word not. Now, where are you going to put it? Okay. So if you want more details, see me later. All right. So they did do him wrong. You know that through weakness of the flesh, I preached to you the gospel the first time. All right. What is he talking about, the weakness of the flesh? Again, there has been lots of proposals. But probably the best one is that Paul is speaking here about his thorn in the flesh. Some physical malady that he had. There's been all kinds of conjecture through the years of what that is, that he had malaria, that he had bad eyesight. We're going to get to that one in a minute. All kinds of conjecture. But the point is, when he preached the gospel, he had a physical Affliction, a weakness. Now, according to the Jews, if you had a weakness like that, you could be declared unclean and unacceptable. So what he's saying to them is this. The fact that God used me with my weak infirmity is a reminder of what he did on the cross. Because on the cross, Jesus Christ dying looked about as weak as it could get. It was an act that was considered total weakness, a failure. And yet it was the power of God and the wisdom of God. So now... God is using me even with my physical affirmity 
to bring the gospel to you. Okay? Because in verse 14 it says, For your temptation in my flesh, and the words need to be added to reject me, but you did not despise me, you did not spit on me, but you received me as an angel of God, as Christ Jesus. In other words, they were tempted because of this physical infirmity in his flesh to reject his proclamation. But here he is commending them because he, say, he says, you have received me, taken me in as an angel of God, as Christ Jesus himself. Okay? Where is your blessing? For I testify to you that if you were able, you would pluck out your eyes and give them to me. Now on the basis of this passage and others is why many believe his physical infirmity was poor eyesight. The other passage that lends to that is sometimes at the close of a book he will write, see what large letters I write to you with. Now that's one thought. The other thought is this. I'll give you an example. You love me so much you give me the shirt off your back. Is that what he's saying? You love me so much you give me your own eyes. Is that just a form of you'd give me the shirt off your back? Or is it specifically dealing with his infirmity, which is eyesight. And we do not know. We simply do not know. So, have I become your enemy because I speak to you the truth? In other words, I'm now bringing this gospel message back to you and telling you that the things you've fallen into are sin, evil, and will not save you. By telling you that, have I become your enemy? By telling you the truth of the gospel, have I become your enemy? That's his question. Now the next verse, they sought you or were zealous for you for the wrong reasons. They wished to exclude you in order that you might seek them. Now what in the world is Paul saying? Paul is saying that these false teachers came in. False teachers came to you for the wrong reasons. Their motivation was the wrong reason. Because they wanted to exclude you from the Christian community by taking you in a Jewish direction so that when you were excluded, you would seek them instead of Paul. Do I need to go through that again? Their goal was the wrong reason 
to deceive you. To deceive you. And to exclude you. To say Paul's message was inferior. So that you might seek them and not Paul. That's what it's saying. That's what it's saying. So it's an accusation against their false teachers. Okay? And then it says, for the worthy reasons, for the worthy, you were sought. Always. And if only I could be present with you. Okay? You were sought for the right reasons. Came for you. Paul preached to you for the right reasons. My children, who again. I have to suffer birth pains until Christ is formed in you. Now, this is a verse that he'll refer to later in the chapter, birth pains. In other words, they have abandoned what he taught them. Now, he is likening it, likening it to childbirth, that I've got to go through that again to get you back. I have to birth you again in the gospel of Jesus Christ to get you back. Okay. That it's labor. It's like labor. And so he, he then says, wish to be present with you now, and to change my tone, to change my voice. In other words, to not speak harshly anymore. And then he adds, because I am, and, and the, I don't know what yours translates, perplexed in you, the actual word means I'm fit to be tied with you people. I'm fit to be tied. I'm at my wit's end with you people. That's what's being implied. That's what's being implied. At my wit's end. I say, uh, I say, um, and we're, we're getting into kind of a new, new section here. Tell me, you who desire to be under the law, do you listen to the law? In other words, do you really listen to what it says? So now he's going to give an example. Right? Give an example. For it has been written that Abraham had two sons. One from the slave woman and one from the free woman. But the one from the slave woman was born from the flesh. The one from the free woman through the promise. Okay. This is the story of Sarah and Hagar. Okay. Where the slave woman, Hagar, Sarah's slave, had a child according to the flesh. 
in the natural way. That Sarah told Abraham, I can't have children, so go into my maid and have a child by her. Okay? That's what happened, and it resulted in the birth of Ishmael. Okay. But he also had another son from a free woman. She was not a slave. Okay? He was born through the promise. So what's being said here is, Ishmael was born in the natural way. But Sarah's child was born in a supernatural way. Because she was 90 and he was a hundred, and God promised you will have a child, and it is only by the power of God that he kept his promise, and the free woman had a child, which was Isaac. Okay, now that's the picture he's drawing. That's the picture he's drawing. Now, then he says, this, okay, this is to be interpreted allegorically. Allegorically. Now, that simply means Paul is going to take some license here. Allegorically. I'll give you an example of allegory. Um, the parable of the Good Samaritan. Let's interpret it allegorically. Okay? The man's coming down. The person who falls among robbers is any human being. And the robbers that beat him up are Satan. Then we realize that the person that was walking down the road and found him is Jesus. Jesus binds him up and takes him to the inn, which is the church, and gives him two, remember, two coins, take care of him. That's baptism in the Lord's Supper. And say, I will return and I will return to you to get him and to pay the bill. That's Christ's second coming. That's allegory. Okay? That's allegory. Allegory was the way they interpreted Scripture for a long time. You can find a lot of allegorical interpretation in Luther. But right here, at least Paul fesses up. I'm going to allegorize this. Okay, I'm going to do that. Okay. The two women are two covenants. One from the Mount Sinai. The one who was born of the slave woman is from Mount Sinai, which is Hagar. And Hagar is the mountain Sinai, which is in Arabia, which corresponds to Arabia. Okay? Or what Hagar did corresponds to Mount Sinai, which is the present Jerusalem for they are enslaved with their children. All right, now that's a mouthful. Hagar had a child. 
he's allegorizing, he's allegorizing this, saying that's one of the covenants. And that covenant is based on Sinai, which is the law. And it enslaves. It enslaves. Okay? It enslaves. That. And Hagar corresponds to this. He corresponds to this. All right. Then, the Jerusalem above is the free woman. She is our mother. The other covenant is the free woman, the covenant made with Abraham through Sarah. Sarah is our mother because she is the mother beginning with Isaac and we are free. And this is the Jerusalem from above, the new Jerusalem, the new creation. So the covenant with Hagar led to enslavement and the law. The covenant with Sarah is from the promise and brings about a new creation and we as believers in Christ, that is our mother. That's the gospel. All right. A couple of questions. We're out of time. We'll have to pick this up next week. It's a bad place to stop, but that's what we got to do. So you can see he's allegorizing the two wives to two covenants to two results. Okay? Two different results. One through human beings, one through God's work, through the gospel. Okay? Through the gospel. And uh, I'll just warn you, if you're reading ahead, the next verse seems to be trying to coordinate his allegory with a new illustration. Don't do that. Verse 27 is a new illustration and has nothing to do with Sarah and Hagar. Okay? So don't try to make it fit, because it won't. Okay, it won't. And we'll pick up there next week. Any final thoughts? All right, the grace of our Lord Jesus Christ and the love of God and the fellowship of the Holy Spirit be with you all. Amen.